six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. We have commit and we have liftoff at 213. And it is clear the tower. Prepare yourself for a world Good morning, everybody. Conley here with the Science Nights in the Morning. We have Dr. Sean Graham in the house with us all the way from Australia. Dr. Thomas Schiller, he's out digging up dinosaurs, I think. Is that right, Sean? That's right. He's he's out there looking for the big ones. Yeah. He doesn't like to come back unless he finds the really big ones. And oh, so- yeah, the big juicy ones. <laughs> And uh, Honor Bond's riding tigers up in India. Yeah, he's doing uh, state-of-the-art COVID-19 hiding, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, he's always up to something. You know, you know, these days in astronomy, you don't have to necessarily be in a telescope to be doing your science. So I'm sure he's doing some cool stuff. All right. Well, that's cool. Yeah, and well, we have a very special guest. Uh, we uh, have been really excited to have this guest on dr brian schroeder is here with us and he has uh some very interesting information uh very good findings you now dr schroeder how are you doing i'm doing well thanks for having me awesome well we're excited uh, to talk about your research today uh you recently published in the journal of archaeological science uh some very interesting findings uh in the spirit eye cave it's uh, reestablishing province of trafficked prehistoric human remains using a composite collection-based ancient DNA approach. Now, that's a lot of words for a layman like me. And, and A lot of 50-cent words. There's, there, there's a lot. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so can you uh, start out by, first off, before we get into your paper, tell us a little about yourself. Now, you're here based out of uh, Alpine. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I'm the director for the Center for Big Band Studies. Um, I'm originally from Wyoming and I did my master's and my bachelor's at the university of Wyoming and I'll be absolutely truthful. I, uh, Texas was not on my radar at all. I <laughs> really love doing research in Wyoming and I spent most of my, uh, at least in my research days, um, above the tree line and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem kind of outside of Dubois, Wyoming. you you did your stuff in Wyoming above tree line. Yeah. What what people, what cultures were you looking at up there? Uh, so that was kind of what we were doing. So uh, nobody had ever found, they were called villages, but they're probably absolutely not villages. They're probably just like a composite of people reoccupying the same spot. So then mm. it starts to look like a village. But we were unraveling all that. Are these villages? How old are they? When did people move up and above the tree line? And what we found out is people were actually... It was the earliest onslaught of different fluctuating tree lines because of climate change. So you can see people Uh. following the edge of the the forest as climate changes. And they always wanted to live right at the edge of the forest with the alpine tundra because they can move into different environments really easily. But move right back into... um, the, mount, the mountains. So there was all sorts of super, I would like to say, archaeology nerd stuff that happened there. Like we were really trying to figure out 
how to date them. We had a really hard time figuring out how to see how old these were. What was the answer? Um, I'm very well, intrigued. So they're probably not very old. Probably 900 is about as old as they are. Yeah. Uh, but we got a whole lot of dates that looked like they were 4,000 years old. Yeah. But then we dated all the deadfall that's on the surface. They're just trees that are in that cold alpine tundra environment, just living on, like, you know, just look like driftwood now. And we dated those, and some of those can be 3,000 years old. Holy cow. Wow. So, yeah, I know the kind of wood. thing you're talking about. Like, there's a lot of kind of downed wood up there, and I would have thought it was just pretty recent. And you're telling me that sometimes that stuff has been laying there for 3,000 three grand. Wow. Great. What do we call those folks? That is there a name for that culture? or? Uh, I know that's probably dicey when it comes to archaeology yeah, it's these dicey. days. A lot of people associate them with either the Mountain Crow or the Eastern Shoshone groups. Okay. But I'm really actually not super comfortable going there because you don't, yeah. you just don't know. I mean, you don't know yeah. how they identified. So. Yeah. Uh, and that's really important these days, right? So like, I guess a lot of the, you might mention to the, our listeners, a lot of the funding these days for archaeological research comes from, um, some of these laws that were put in place in the early nineties where you're, you've got to be very delicate about the way that you do your research. And it's all, it's kind of all about placing what, where, what these sites and who these people were and connecting them to modern groups. Right. Yeah. So I will, I'll say that that probably that's, that's all true. That's all absolutely true. But I think it, okay stems out of, I mean, archaeology has kind of a colonial background for sure. Right. And right. we haven't been very good at having other people at the table, not only descendant communities, but uh, like amateur folks that have been involved. We've, we've kind of turned our nose up at anybody who wasn't in the ivory tower. So really what right. we've been doing uh, is having a really hard conversation about how to get all of these other groups engaged in what we do, who are stakeholders. They're all people who are also invested in the past. So a lot of the laws you're talking about, uh, they give federally recognized tribes um, a, a comment period when federal money is involved on projects. And some state laws just basically see the federal law. So uh, Texas is not one of those. Um, no, I wouldn't imagine so. <laughs> <laughs> so um, some of the state laws are even more... Uh, more rigid than the federal laws and kind of override the federal law and give um, um, non-federally recognized group a seat at the table. So I think a lot of what a lot of people are doing is just bringing indigenous voices in any, and really any descendant community, because I mean, I mean, when you do historic stuff, it's the Hispanic voices need to be there. African voices. I mean, everybody who's had kind of been kind of left at, out of the conversation, but is also kind of, directly related to the conversation has yeah, not yeah. really been in there. So. Oh, and man, what, just what you just talked about with the, all the different voices you were just mentioning, can you think of a better place where that comes to play than West Texas? That's right. This, this is absolutely the epicenter. And yeah, that's uh, that was the problem we had for doing research here. We knew we were working with what well, we knew we were drinking, working with indigenous remains, but also knew that the history of them wasn't, uh, associated with late period groups. So we didn't really know who to talk to. So uh, we really, really had a really tough time about the geneticists I worked with. We really kind of 
fumbled around with this quite a bit. Well, maybe we should we should jump right in then, because I you know we're kind of getting in the weeds here talking about laws and stuff. Maybe that's not what our listeners want to talk to, but I guess hopefully we gave them the impression that nowadays archaeology is kind of delicate. It's not Indiana Jones uh, yeah. raiding a temple and taking stuff to put in a museum. Um, it's a lot different. In fact, I, I love that you mentioned the ivory tower thing because it's definitely shifted from it's shifted away from academia even. Yeah, where the main people doing the work are no longer even professors, right? Or associated with universities. That's not where a lot of the funding goes. It's private sector. It's private consulting firms that, and so our knowledge of the past is getting shifted away from like, you know, some professor and his students or her students going out and and uh, testing some hypothesis to uh, we're going to dig up this area before they put it in the highway, right? And it's kind of neat because it's it's turned all of your sites into random sites. Right. How did that, did that come to play at all about how you ended up with Spirit Eye Cave? Uh, no, no, they didn't. Well, I guess in a way they kind of did because when I worked in Wyoming and I, I did a year in California where the laws were way different, um, I'd worked really kind of with those laws for a long time. So mm-hmm. if you're going to go do archaeology anywhere where you have to get what's called an Archaeological Resource Protection Act permit, you have yeah. to have a research design. You have to know exactly why you're going to dig those holes. It's subject to review by the federal agency. And usually by the time you do what you want to do, uh, you <laughs> don't get to really do what you want to do. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Sounds right. like you so, have to be a lawyer uh, right. as well right. as a, a scientist. Yeah. Right. So you really do. Yeah. And that's kind of the thing you're thrown into after you've gone to school by, oh, yeah, by the way, all these way you do archaeology is through these federal laws and uh, you need to know them. Like, oh, OK, well, that's news. And some people train in that stuff, but some people don't. But so having worked with those laws for so long, um, one of the appeals of this place was that those laws aren't as strict here. And yeah. so it's kind of a double-edged sword. You can be, I mean, you're, you, you, you're your own, you're kind of policing yourself. Yeah. And you kind of went through, it sounds like you, you've been all over the place in all the world. So you started in academia, you go into private sector for a while. Now you've kind of landed back in academia, I guess, right. Right. Um, ish. Um, and then, and you're free to kind of pick your projects. So right. that's, that's how uh, the Spirit Eye Cave right. thing right. came about. So we were working on a ranch and, the landowner had mentioned that they have a big cave. And one of the things that really, really attracted me to this is that archaeology changed from mostly a descriptive, like antiquarian discipline, where you kind of have like a cabinet of curios and like, look at all these neat things that I found. And it kind of changed from that to a discipline of science from a guy named Walter Taylor. And what's interesting is he literally came to the Big Bend to do that. He came... Uh, and, and if you take any anthropology or archaeology class, they will talk about Walter Taylor. He was that fundamental of a character. It doesn't matter where you are in the world, they'll talk about him because he huh. changed archaeology from descriptive to a science. And he came here. Victor Smith said, nope, I'm already digging caves. He wanted to dig in Sunny Glen. And wow. Victor Smith said, nope. So wanted to dig in sunny Glen, and the local authority said hell no i got my shotgun stay off <laughs> and then <laughs> and then every, everything was quiet 
So yeah, okay. Victor Smith was the archaeologist for Saul Ross. And he said, no, you can't. I'm digging him. You don't need to dig him. He said, you know what? But if you go down the road to San Antonio, you'll probably find somebody there you can link up with. So he went down the road to San Antonio. I think he linked up with somebody at the Witty. They they asked him how much money he had and how, how he was going to go about digging sites. And he said he had 50 bucks. And they said, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. What you want to do is you want to go down to Mexico. 50 bucks isn't going to get you anywhere. But if you take my teenage son with you, that's another 50 bucks. And 100 bucks, you can really do some stuff down there. So he had 100 bucks to lead a two-week expedition in Mexico. Tell me, he, did he discover Pacame? He did not discover Pacame. Oh, okay. he, he dug, and the site really isn't, he dug a site, he dug a big cave called Fat Burrow Cave. Nobody's ever really gone back to the sites. And it wasn't even necessarily the sites that were so important it was what he thought you could do with the stuff you pulled out of him he said you know rather than describing this stuff i think what we're actually looking at is human behavior and why don't we concentrate on understanding how human behavior changes over time rather than just describing all the stuff we got out of it that's where he kind of changed things and he got people focused on behavior and he didn't really how long ago how long ago we talking here he dug in 1938 Okay. And then World War II happened, and obviously there was a pause. So his uh, dissertation. Right. He went. He went and joined the U.S. military, and then he went and fought, and he came back. And then 19- the Russians were hunting him, <laughs> and then he got caught with a big spaceship. Right. Everybody's yeah. seen that movie. Okay. Right. Yeah, you've really, <laughs> you, you got it. Okay. <laughs> uh, he finished his dissertation in 1948. Wow. Wow. Hmm. Wow. Okay, cool. So he changes the game and he kind of comes to this part of the world to do it. Yeah. And now, everybody... So you've set this up. We're expecting big things from you now. So, yeah. So that that's what I mean. I didn't think I'd have that impact, but I thought, man, those caves must be so cool that you can do this. Yeah. That's when this landowner said, I have this big cave. I was like, where? Let's see it. Let's go take a look. And other people at the center had been there before and they thought it was really trashed. And that um, they weren't going to be able to do, you know, any kind of formal science with it. And I thought, well, it's so big. It's such a big cave. I mean, there's got to be something left. And yeah. so I was kind of naive in the situation and really wanted there to I be. Love, I love how you, uh, the <laughs> listeners couldn't see, but what he just did with his hands is he held his hands up flat and started moving them down. And that's what an archaeologist does whenever he starts salivating over a cave. He's picturing himself digging those layers. (laughs) Digging the layers. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're thinking, surely, okay, so why was it trash? Because that has a lot of relevance. How was it trash? That has huge relevance to your paper. Yeah. So um, there was a former landowner there that would allow access to the the cave uh, for a price. You could come dig it uh, for $2 a day. Oh my God! When was this? Uh, nine, probably late 1950s to the end of the 1960s, and then it changed hands. And so late 1950s through the wow. 1960s, and you pay it was, to go in the cave and dig out your arrowhead what, and whatever you found, wow. whatever you found, whatever you, you found, got you found keep, wow. whatever cranium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't even they didn't even keep they. Yeah, it gets even darker. <laughs> um, wow so they yeah they would take it for you know two dollars a day so yeah the one leading the leading everything was a usda cattle inspector and he was he was down here just kind of traipsing and crossed ranches inspecting cattle he ended up telling a barber in alpine about the cave 
and they got he got them really interested, and they were the ones that ended up digging down there the longest. Nobody had ever talked with them. Well, well, the the USDA cattle inspector's dead, but uh, the other one's still alive, and um, I ended up talking with him about what he did down there, and he actually filled in a lot of this history, and so um, it's got a very very long history of people digging it for just the stuff in it, just take the artifacts. Wow. Um, and actually the earliest account is probably, uh, if folks know about Pueblo Benito, um, it's in Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. It's the huge Pueblo in sight. Uh, the guy who dug that for the Smithsonian was writing letters to ranchers out in the Big Bend region looking for a cave to dig. Mm-hmm. And he ended up talking to a guy uh, who said there's a really big cave uh, just off of Rio Dosa, just outside of Rio Dosa. There's a guy digging that cave who says he's looking for Spanish gold, but it's all he's finding is all this textile stuff. So <laughs> uh, that's probably the earliest mention of this cave. And it was, wow. a 19, it was in 1928. Wow. Okay. Interesting. So, so it's been, people have been in and out of that cave rooting around uh, the- pot hunting since the 20s. And you were able to get in there and do science well you actually circumvented uh that you're you weren't you you used a dna approach right collect collecting dna you did a different style of digging i guess in this instance is that correct so i went there and i dug and what i found out is there's nothing left Ah, well okay (laughs) after the break let's go ahead and get into uh what you found how's that that sounds fun yeah okay cool Hey, welcome back, everybody. Science Nights in the Morning. It's Sean Graham here. We're here with Brian Schroeder, who is telling us about his archaeological adventures in the Big Bend. Uh, this place called Spirit Eye Cave, a huge cave down in the Big Bend, um, out towards, it's out towards the Abe Lincoln profile. Is that right? People around uh, here will know behind that it, is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, where we left off, we were talking about, we kind of set it up. He found that this cave has been kind of ransacked by uh, collectors, pot hunters. We call them pot hunters when we want to say it like that. Pot hunters. Uh, they've been in there since the 20s, ransacking the place. He thought maybe there's some corner of the cave where he could actually get some information. And he goes in, does some digging, and there's nothing left. Pretty trashed. <laughs> it's almost like uh, I could make a really Kmart metaphor here and say if you were to find an old dead bone out in the desert, um, there's very little live bone left in that bone. There's hardly any collagen. There's hardly any DNA left. But if you really know how to look for it, maybe you could still get something out of it. So I'll leave you with that obvious setup to what you did next. I thought what I would reconstruct the history and I thought maybe what I would do is more of a, an anthropological thing rather than an archaeological thing and just try to figure out what the collector's motives were. Like, why did they go to the site? Like, what I thought, you know, maybe what gets comes out of it is an interesting history of the destruction. And when I did that, what I found out is that a lot of these people had removed human remains. And these human remains weren't bone. They were fully fleshed humans. So mummies? Uh, they're Whoa. naturally desiccated. Yeah, they've been preserved. Oh in this, They're fully fleshed. There's four oh of my. them. You've, and that's what you sampled? That's what I found, yeah. Oh, my wow. God. I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, wow, yeah. So this, this takes crazy. a pretty dark turn. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they're actually were sold on the black market, uh, for a 
Uh, one of them got trafficked to California and uh, got sold out of the back of a shotgun magazine and got sold to a guy in California in Palm Springs and for 4500 bucks. And uh, he raised and taxidermied exotic species. And the Game and Fish busted him in 98 because he would uh, literally raise and then taxidermy animals and then sell the taxidermied animals. And when they, I want to envision they kicked his door in. And when they kicked his door in, in yeah. the story that I tell, there was a terrarium on the floor of a fully fleshed mummy. And it was like right where you take your shoes off. And Wait, what? A terrarium on the floor? It, it was a terrarium with the with a human in it. Yeah. Oh, so like a wow. glass case. Yeah. Yeah. A big glass yeah. case. Like, like, like when you well, go to those, those roadside attractions in Arizona, it's like, what is it? And you yeah. go in and see the little desiccated thing. Yeah. And it was, he had that in his house. In his house where you take your shoes off, like right when Man. you walk in. Right when you walk in. I guess. In. Wow. So some, this guy's like the ultimate uh, coward. He's like, he's like a Jeffrey Dahmer. Who's too, too much of a, 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 a pansy to kill people and put them in his house. <laughs> He has to buy them. He bought them. <laughs> this is terrible that we're joking about this. This is horrifying. It, it's insane. And I want to go on the record here. I'm joking about this. You're not. <laughs> it was insane. And oh so they called the coroner immediately because they said, not only is this weird that he's yeah. attacked from his animals. Call the Texas like, Texas Rangers and, and chips. Well, she was there in, in there. Springs. So they're in Palm Springs, California. And <sighs> So they get the corner. The corner has enough presence of mind to say that this is somewhere from the American Southwest or it's indigenous person and they're from the American Southwest or uh, maybe the Great Basin up in, you know, Nevada, uh, Utah region, Western Utah. There's a letter associated with that. It's supposed to be written from the governor, Dolph Briscoe, about how the governor of Dolph Briscoe personally owns Spirit Eye Cave and uh, stopped the University of Texas and University of New Mexico from digging in it and uh, kind of kind of preserved this place. And it's the most amazing archaeological archaeology site in North America. And I mean, just something you would, if you were going to traffic human remains, you would put uh-huh. them. But from that, she knew that they were from Texas. The coroner knew they were from Texas. Yeah. So she got in hold of the state archaeologist and they ended up getting back here. Um, now they... Uh, um, now they're at uh, UT Austin. So nobody had ever connected Spirit Eye to those remains. And I was able to trace everything back to those remains. So, uh, wow. Because now, this is, this brings to- me, this is a huge question. And I, I hope I'm not wrong about this. So some of those laws that we were talking about earlier, do they not say that you're not supposed to use DNA to identify some of the people? Uh, no, they, what's supposed to happen is if you do destructive analysis, you're supposed to have indigenous groups consult with them before you do any destructive stuff. Okay. In this case, because of the trafficked nature of it, we thought, uh, what we would do was do the DNA and figure out who to consult with, because the second set of remains that I tracked down, well, I tracked down all of the remains. There's four of them and two people won't talk with me. They're still in private. They're owned by people. Yeah. Yeah. And they they won't work with me. I know where they are, but they won't, they won't work mm. with me. Okay. So uh, here's another law that we need to find out about. Is it legal to have a corpse in your house? Yep. It, it is. Yeah. Wow. 
because it's like people have, people have a funeral urn with the ashes and that's legal. So Usually everywhere else, it's like you can't own a body, but you can own cremains. But uh, here in Texas, you can own a body. Wow. <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> of course you can in Texas. Of yeah. course you can. Wow. So oh that's what I thought. I, that's, that was the first avenue I tried. Like, well, obviously you can't legally own a body. That's right. incredible. And then when I called everybody I needed to call, they were like, yeah, there's no law. I'm like, wow. Okay. Could we make one? <laughs> yeah. Hell no. Right. We don't need no laws. Okay. Wow. So, wow. Because the reason why I asked that is I, I noticed that about your study. You did use DNA to try to kind of tie these remains to modern groups. And I, and I thought I read somewhere that, um, cause I, Maybe it's the destructive part that you're mentioning. So if you don't have a point of contact where you can talk to, it's like you don't know who the group is if you don't know use DNA. Right. Um, so you don't know who to talk to. Therefore, you can't do it, which doesn't make any sense because the only way you can find out what group to talk to is to, to take some DNA. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a crazy it, circular thing. It, and it, it, I feel like there's a lot we would know if you were able to take a little DNA from every tooth that's in the American Museum of Natural History and map those people yeah and i mean they have different views on that some groups just think that you know they know who they are so they don't need they don't need it and that's i i I can respect that and some people think that you know it's just kind of another extension of like the colonial legacy of archaeology and there's all sorts of conversations here but what we really wanted to do so was there was this traffic set of remains but then there's another set of remains that's still in a private care so there's Four total from Spirit Eye. I've tracked right. them all down, mm-hmm. and there's one adult left. And that adult, I tracked down to a house. Uh, I won't tell people what city it's in, but I tracked it down. And, you should. <laughs> and I was able Ride to talk to them and, and, and sample it. And I, when I talked with them, I mean, there's no way to do NAGPRO as somebody who owns something legally. I mean, they bought access to the cave. And this is this is a loophole of uh, private law, right? I mean, they they own they own the rights to this essentially because they bought access to the cave, and then they found the remain this human, this fully fleshed human, and they took mm. them out, wow. and they have them in their house. And wow, uh, it's unbelievable! It's yeah, unbelievable. No. Uh, Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. This really isn't uncommon, though. This happens actually all over the world, right? No, it's insane. There's a whole bla- there's actually a book about this called the Mummy Congress, oh, and wow. all these people these people get together and they have mummies from Egypt, the Atacama Desert. They they people really dabble in oh. owning especially fleshed humans like this is going to be in the new netflix uh series it's tiger king and now it's going to be mummy king this is unbelievable and you know i guess kind of coming back to what we started with though it's not that different than the way archaeology was a hundred years ago no no i mean some of the most prominent anthropologists would have the same thing in their so I mean, for so I tracked down these. I tracked down the ones that got trafficked, and I tracked down the ones that are still in a house. The person that they're still in the house didn't believe that they were indigenous. Uh, the remains at Taro had already gone through Nagpra. There was no claimants, so we were okay to sample there. Uh, and these ones, I thought, well, we'll do a DNA to prove that to this person that they're indigenous because they're obviously indigenous. And 
um, we'll date them. And I wanted to also verify that, you know, they're roughly the same age because I didn't know any of that because I had traced these things down through, you know, word of mouth and a little bit of letters. And so I thought this will be a great way to prove that they're at least the same age. But what ended up happening after I sampled them is that I found out that they're related. They share they oh, share wow. a matrimony. Could be without getting too in the weeds on radiocarbon dating. Radiocarbon dating isn't dating anything but the day that something died. And it's we've done all sorts of stuff to the environment. Added carbon with uh, you know nuclear war and bombs yeah. and testing. Yeah. So basically, we set the clock at 1950. It's a big curve, so it's not absolutely stable. So you get kind of an error rate in the day a radiocarbon date. Then you have to convert it to calendar date. Starting from 1950, we've added so much carbon to the atmosphere um, that we've basically um, built a curve off of tree ring dating that kind of helps you figure out how radiocarbon dating works. So we have a lot of variation in a date and it's uh, radiocarbon years have to be converted to calendar years through matching them to this to this calibration curve. And so these two mummies like this is a long way of saying that they're either 200 years apart or 500 years apart because of variation in that curve. Wow. But the, the point is that there's either but several generations. They're related. So they're, yeah, they're, that means that they've been occupying the cave for the same matriline hundred years. Yeah, yeah. The same matriline has been occupying that cave for at least 200 years. Yeah. At least 50 years or as long as 200 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and were so all the mummifications uh, processes the same? Were they like uh, all so, through yeah, rapid burial? Remember, I, I I screwed up and I said mummy, but that doesn't mean that they were prepared. No, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're they were yeah, just they're, dried out because they were in that cave. Right, right. So yeah, if you reduce, if you remove uh, water, oxygen, or sunlight from an archaeology site, there's di- different ways to do it. Like Utsi, the Iceman in the Alps, there was no there's nothing that can get into that ice to eat his, eat the flesh. So that's why he was preserved. Same thing happens here. You remove sunlight and water and you get this perfect preservation. And that's why they're not fleshed because they were prepared. They're for flesh because the preservation conditions. And were, were they also, were they buried as well? Yeah. They're flexed. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah, yeah. they're, they're, they're both in a sitting position mm, and wow. their arms are, their arms are folded across their chest. And that's pretty common in the Southwest, these flexed burials, right? It, yeah. The, it's one of the things that I think pulls the Big Bend region into a larger conversation with the American Southwest Puebloan culture. Uh-huh. As these individuals are uh, buried like that. And then the DNA proved that they're related. But more than that, it found that there is living groups of these indigenous they don't have a name, but this indigenous group is still living in Alpine and Marfa. So what? There, wow, yeah. there are there are living modern populations of the same indigenous group that really they knew that they had some indigenous ancestry, but they didn't know that it was that long. And, and that it had been tied to that spot for so they, long. They've wow. been here for nine hundred years. <laughs> nine hundred so cool. years. People walking around at Porters and uh and wherever else. Wow. So speaking speaking of uh, the larger context of the Southwest, I mentioned this place, Pakime, that uh, some of our listeners probably know about. They might have heard it uh, referred to as the Casas Grandes site yeah. in Mexico, in, in north, northwestern Chihuahua. You found evidence that um, some of these folks are related to the folks who lived in uh, Pakime. 
could you describe could you describe how important that site is to the greater yeah, yeah. So uh, there western was a texas region so it's a giant trade center it's kind of uh 89 900 maybe a little earlier that to 80 1200 and it's this multi multi room pueblo it's it, it's not stone it's adobe and it's it's i mean hundreds of people live there they seem to control shell trade from the gulf um and, uh, and pens with scarlet macaws. Yeah, they had scarlet trade macaws. relations they, to South they, they, they Mexico. Were, basically, Casas Grandes is a trade center, and things go north to Chaco Canyon. They there's some Hohokama stuff coming out of Arizona. Um, I mean, it, it's a big trade center, and there's a whole bunch of uh, they they control some really interesting pottery production. Um, but it, I mean, it, it would have been a big kind of multicultural haven. Yeah, Haven Village for many people. I always shy away from the word village, but I mean, it, it, and it's not contemporary Puebloan like we think of like people living in New Mexico now, but it's something approximating that. They probably had leadership. Uh, anyways, they're, 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 they're huge. It's not how people are organizing in Texas. Mm. Uh, but people have always suspected a link from Texas to there. One of the first archaeologists here always thought that uh, groups here were sending agave that way. Uh, because they had kind of stripped their resources because of how big they were. And we have a lot of Pacame pottery here, but we've, we haven't had a big link that way other than the pottery. And actually what's not in that paper is that after we did the DNA, uh, the geneticist ran three more um, sets of remains from Pacame, and they're also part of this matter line. So there are three people who are that are not in that paper who after the fact, uh, and we're working on this, Oh, wow. uh, right now, they're directly related to people in Spirit Eye. So that match line extends all the way to Pac-Man. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. Tell me, uh, I, I'm having a hard time with the dates. Um, are they contemporary, the people from your cave in Pakime? Or is there, so it's 900 no. AD is the cave, and 900 AD is approximately when Pakime is kind of starting up? These these folks would have been kind of the middle to end of Pacame, but they would have been totally coeval with occupations at Pacame. That's so cool. Wow. There's Pacame pottery in Spirit Eye too. So that's incredible. <laughs> Interesting. That, so they are. I love linked. the I love I love the idea of um, you know them bringing you know maybe being the uh, sotoleros or the mescaleros bringing in because in Pacame they had these giant pits for right. sotol or mescal or whatever. Um, that they're roasting and yeah, it makes sense it, it would have been quickly, the local area would have been completely stripped of those plants right. within a couple of uh, generations. Right. And then you'd need people going out to the hinterlands to collect, to get loaded. Right. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, we have That's another so break cool. coming up. Um, we have about 10 minutes left in this segment and uh, man, so you went out, you tracked down some some bodies. This really is like a show. This is like something you'd watch this is on TV. CSI Alpine. <laughs> it, it, it's just absolutely amazing. Now, there's people that are uh, have ancestry to the bodies that you found in Spirit Eye Cave that are just right. walking around buying a loaf of bread at Porter's. Yep. And 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 where we go from here, we'll find out right after the break. Hey, everybody. Science Nights in the Morning here. This is Sean Graham, and we're back with Brian Schroeder, who has just been revealing bombshell after bombshell in this incredible episode uh, from a, 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 a kind of custody um, search for some from shriveled up 
human remains found in Spirit Eye Cave, not far away from here. We've now got this idea that uh, not only do, does that information tie these people to a remarkable site, uh, one of the biggest and most important sites of the Southwest over in uh, nearby Chihuahua, but also has implications for modern our modern understanding of, of where our local Big Bend uh, friends and neighbors uh, came from. And this is where I'm going to get on a soapbox here, and 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 you, you don't have to come anywhere near this soapbox. You can just say I pass on this question. <laughs> but I've always felt that archaeology as a science, um, it's so delicate because um, there's all these kind of uh, all this political stuff that you have to worry about these days, um, and I totally understand that. But in many ways, like the science itself is doing great things. And I don't think that that gets said enough because here, here you've done this study where you've shown just through a few neglected and honestly kind of stolen uh, uh, corpses that are found in somebody's Palm Springs foyer. Uh, you've told this story about the big Ben. That is, a, imagine if, if you weren't allowed to do that, you're, you're this guy, this colonialist, that you know, with this really shady background, these are all the kind of terms that they would use. Mm-hmm. But look what you've done! You've done something nobody else could have done, and you've you've elaborated uh, our cultural understanding, our large cultural understanding of of West Texas. And if you weren't allowed to do your work, if somebody had said, "Nope, you can't sample that DNA because it might upset somebody," um, we wouldn't know what you just told us. I mean, we, I never went into it, I guess, with any intentions other than that I thought it was really own human remains here. And I thought maybe if we do the DNA, because there's no way to really have the conversation up front, especially with private owners. So if I thought if we could, if we could do the DNA, maybe then we could, one, prove to this person that they're indigenous, but then also uh, maybe find somebody to talk to. And then maybe that you know is related to these because we do have we do have archaeology does have a colonial past it does and it is important to do science it absolutely is but i think what this study shows more than anything is that how archaeology is not in the past the past is not in the past it's it's still affecting us right now that for me is the kind of archaeology that I, i never knew i could do but when we were when i got into the middle of it i didn't go into it with like Oh, this is what will happen. I just went into it. Right. And I feel like, you know, um, for all its faults and all its past, um, imagine how little we would know about Native American groups without archaeology. I kind of agree with that. I mean, I get kind of bummed out when, uh, and people's intentions are in the best place, but when people show like maps that show what indigenous America, you know, indigenous America would have been, that's indigenous America at like a very specific point in the past. And it's most closely associated with like, you know, the Indian wars and stuff. And it's those populations moved around and we don't know everything. And, and, you know, it's kind of a nuanced conversation. At one one hand, it might not matter to folks because it's the point is that it was an indigenous country. But on the other hand, it kind of doesn't matter who you talk with. Like nobody wanted to do DNA on my ancestors. I wouldn't have a problem with that. But I can understand people that would have a problem with it, too. Yeah, I guess the question, you know. If you were to say, uh, yeah, certainly if anybody wanted to go dig up a bunch of my distant ancestors in Ireland um, from 5000 BC, I wouldn't care at all. But if they said, yeah, I want to dig up your mom 
um, <laughs> as soon as she dies and just take her teeth. Right. That would be a different conversation, yeah. I suppose. And so it's the cultural differences and the time matters. But I do, I, I, I certainly don't think that archaeology should ever be considered this, this boogeyman because, you know, all that information that's there would be totally gone. It would be in somebody's footlocker, right? Um, right. It, all the pot hunters would have got it. Chaco would have been stripped clean. Right. Um, Mesa Verde would have been stripped clean by cowboys. And we wouldn't have a clue of who built those structures. Right. And they could they could be privately owned. Think about that. What if Mesa Verde was somebody's ranch? Could have happened. Could have easily happened. And so um, archaeology and, and the kind of preservation of those sites uh, through the Antiquities Act uh, super important. Yeah. It's yeah. It, I mean, it's it's the entire past of what's going on here. And what actually ended up coming out from this is we found the lineal descendant. And the lineal descendant made a claim, and he's going to be able to bury him in his family plot. Oh, wow. Wow, so that's he, amazing. He's got five generations of – four or five generations of family, and he's going to be able to bury uh, them with his family because they are his family. <laughs> yeah, they are. Oh, my. Wow. Ryan, that's isn't such that cool? an incredible story. Yeah. Can you tell that story? Can you, can you use – I mean, you don't have to tell it here, but would you be able to tell that story, use his name? Yeah. Uh, well, it just entered the legal phase, so uh, public uh, record. Yeah. At some point, you <laughs> I think? mean, no, I mean, I think, I mean, we're not through it yet. We will get through it. It's this study was actually one of the first ones. Uh, NAGPRA actually sets up a clause where um, if uh, lineal if lineal dis- descent can be proven, uh, it kind of circumvents all of the federal recognized groups because you're you're directly in the pipeline. You don't need yeah. to be a federally recognized group. But that's done through cultural means, and it's never been done, well, at least to my knowledge with the people I've talked to, it's never been done through DNA. So we're kind of on new ground proving that DNA can find a lineal descendant, and exactly what that looks like, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of tied up with lawyers right now. I mean, we all know what the resolution will be. It's just exactly how do we make right. that kind of happen. Yeah. So, um yeah, I mean, I can you no give field. us just a little taste? Does this person live in in Brewster County, Texas? He's from here. Um, he's lived here for, I think he's in his early sixties. Um, he's lived here for quite a while. He was actually in my desk the day he was on. He was sitting at my desk the day I found out the results. Wow! And, um, he had independently told me what his uh, haplogroup was, and I looked at my email screen and. Was like, oh, how would he know that? Like, he's got the same haplogroup. What does that mean? And I called the geneticist who was boarding a plane in New York, and she said, uh, "I told her, like, hey, there's this guy sitting here, and he knows his like haplogroup down to a level that's like really detailed. And um, what is he's the exact same as the remains from Spirit Eye? What does that mean?" And she said, uh, "She said that means he's literally related to those groups." in spirit eye and so we've oh, been wow. working with him more and more and we figured out that he is and so wow uh, I kinda, he made a he made a claim for the remains and he's got every right to like this guy is wandering around his whole life uh, it's just un, it's unreal it's he unbelievable started, he like i froze when he told me his haplogroup and i said i looked at my email again and i was like well, why would he know that did he yeah, see it's, my a, it's a perfect he's totally he's it's a blind study he yeah, has no idea like, what you're about to find out right and i was like 
wait, I was like, did you, how would you know that? And I looked at him and he was like, he wasn't even, he was in here talking about rock art. He really likes rock art. And he was telling me yeah. about rock art. And I was like, I, you know, I know a little bit about rock art, but, and I was like, okay, that's really weird. And then uh, when I told him that I just got these results back, um, he literally started crying. And he oh said, I, he said, I know, I've always known that I'm indigenous, but uh, I didn't know how much or, you know, I didn't think there were, I was related to people on this landscape, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, some of it is just the history of this state and kind of us occupying it. And uh, I mean, the native folks just kind of got erased and there's a really vibrant indigenous history here that this guy's a part of. And yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I agree with you without doing DNA, we wouldn't have known that at all. We would have, they would have went to the Apache immediately and yeah. I knew they weren't Apache. And it was really important for me to try to figure this out. So I asked him when he made the claim, like, what are you going to make the claim as? And he said, he got, he said, look, I don't know what we were. I have no idea what I am, but I know I'm indigenous and that's all that matters. And I was like, that's, you couldn't have given a better answer. I, that That's the answer. Yeah. He's got every right to make the claim. And I think it's by far given the history of this cave, the best resolution that could have possibly happened. Yeah. Um, this, it, yeah. Wow. That's amazing. So I have to ask with that. So it's not like you just uploaded the DNA to 23andMe. There was like an actual big uh, a process. You, did you have to go out and just ask people to swab up? Or, or did, was there data already there that you could analyze? There's, there's some data already. Uh, there's been a whole bunch of people doing stuff down in Mexico. So there's there's a bunch of populations in Mexico that they're related to. Um, but no, this was independent. I mean, he was literally sitting here when I got the result. <laughs> and um, it was absolutely serendipitous. And, and he knew he knew his haplotype because what? He'd done some sort of ancestry.com. He he went further down the road. I mean, he had done that, but then he went even more into it. And he really he's a super smart guy and he really chased his uh he really he really got down the road on figuring out his own haplogroup and you know, let's figure out how to get these remains to you. So cool. Incredible. Yeah. That, well that done, is a fantastic well done. story. And uh, you're continuing your research, correct? Yeah, there's a whole bunch more. I mean, there's a whole bunch of other stuff from the cave. The cave also has the oldest. Uh, it's got the oldest corn in Texas in it and um, other areas that we'll be able to take it. It's also got, uh, it's one of 12 caves that preserve sloth dung. So, hmm, uh, wow, interesting. We, we put a, I put a paper out with Jim Mead. Uh, it has 18,000 years of sloth occupation before humans ever get in it. Wow. That's unbelievable. Very neat. So yeah, there's, 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 there's still more to do there. Well, that's great. So uh, they can Google your name, Brian Schroeder and uh, find some of your research and yeah. Yeah. Or it's check it. I mean, check out the center for big All our works on there. That's cbbs.solross.edu cbbs.solross.edu or just google center of big bend studies and you'll find it great excellent well thank you brian i really appreciate you being on with us that's such an amazing story i i really hope that you can come back and be in the studio with us sometime and uh <laughs> and, and talk about more of your research because that was a very interesting story and we're looking uh, forward to watching you 
unravel the mystery even further. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> well, I appreciate lot, it. Yeah. And thank you, Sean, for uh, stay, being steadfast as always. Uh, it's the Science Nights in the morning, and we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this episode of Science Nights in the Morning. Be sure and follow us on Patreon for exclusive gear and uncut episodes. Check out the latest science articles on our Facebook page and subscribe to us on YouTube and your favorite podcast listening app. You can also listen every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time at BigBenRadio.com. And if you got a question, we'll join the discussion. Hit the hotline at 432-217-1983 and record your message. We couldn't do this without you, and thank you so much for listening each and every week. That's Science Nights in the Morning with a K, and we'll see you next time.